we started realizing that, hey, you know, this could really be a really useful uh, method for looking back at these trials and trying to identify a type of patient with certain characteristics that may have formed the basis for a successful trial. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. In December of last year, research funded by the ALS Association found that NFL players are four times more likely to be diagnosed with ALS and die from the disease than people who have never played in the league. This adds to the mounting evidence of a link between playing football and ALS. Now, I don't bring up that paper, which was published in the journal Neurology, to dampen anybody's excitement over the NFL playoffs and the upcoming Super Bowl. Rather, it is to illustrate one of the many ways that researchers continue to learn more about the disease, all in the search to find treatments and a cure. That wasn't the only big news in ALS research as we closed out the year. In December, the Pooled Resource Open Access ALS Clinical Trials, or PROACT, database received the Healy Center International Prize for Innovation in ALS, a $50,000 award. That database is the largest collection of ALS clinical trial data, and it includes de-identified records of 11,000 patients from 23 clinical trials. This data is made available at no cost to researchers around the world to facilitate the search for treatments and a cure. This has in turn contributed to at least 70 research publications. And that's just a short snippet of some of the big developments in research in 2021. Joining me this week to discuss the state of ALS research is Dr. Kuldeep Dave, Vice President of Research at the ALS Association. Dr. Dave, thanks for being with us this week. Thank you for having me and happy new year to everyone. Yeah, happy new year. Uh, we're, we're, we're kicking off the year with a, a focus on those three mission, mission pillars at the ALS Association. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, an opportunity to, to sit down and look at the state of clinical care. And last week we heard about an update on advocacy and, and some of the public policy fights that are ahead. And, this week, Kuldip, we're looking at ALS research specifically. Um, talk to us a little bit about the role research has played in making ALS livable and maybe some of the highlights from 2021. Thank you for having me again, Jeremy. Um, research plays an extremely crucial role in making ALS a livable disease. We can fund treatments and cures for tomorrow so that people can live longer we can fund and we do fund quality of life research so that people with ALS can live the way they want and can interact with the world in the way they want. And we fund prevention research, preventing ALS in the first place or even preventing or delaying the harms of ALS. And and this is how ALS research can directly get to our goal of making it a livable disease by 2030. You asked about some of the highlights, um, and I, I can do highlights both internally and externally. Internally, the highlight is due to our strategy, we are on track to fund about 25 different projects in research. And you know that's a spending of over $12 million. Wow. Uh, and that is really exciting. Yeah. Externally, Jeremy, uh, you know, there were some major successes this year. One of them being Amelix 
submitting a new drug application to the FDA for approval of their drug AMX0035. Now, just a reminder for everybody, this is a drug that we funded, uh, the trial that we funded back in 2016. One of the first trials we funded out of our Ice Bucket Fund Challenge funding. And the positive data that came out of that trial has now led to where we are today, which is standing at the cusp of a drug approval. This doesn't happen a lot in our disease and neurological disease. So this is something to celebrate. It's the highlight of last year that I think, you know, will only be superseded if, if FDA grants approval this year, because, you know, that would be huge news. Again, going back to our 2030 goal of making ALS a livable disease is treatments like AMX0035 that we need to get in the hands of people with ALS. Yeah, something we definitely talked about a lot last year and looking forward to continuing that conversation as, as the FDA review and, and, and some of the, the final steps towards making that available happen. So not done with that conversation, but it's so important to reflect back on, on how huge that was last year. But that wasn't all. I didn't mean to uh, step on your toes there, Dr. Dave. No, no. Uh, you know, this is one of the highlights, but this, you know, this is one drug, one treatment that, you know, hopefully will be approved. And that's that's not enough. We want to give an arsenal of treatment and drugs to people with ALS so that, you know, some drugs may work for some people, some drugs may work for some other people. But, you know, if they have these combination of therapies in hand to control the progression of ALS. So, you know, my point of this is, Jeremy, this is not enough. While we're happy that our direct funding has led to this drug standing at the cusp of approval, that we will continue to fund more research, more clinical trials, and making access and success of clinical trials a priority. Well, yeah, that's a great look back and a a look at kind of where things stand here in January. I mean, as we look ahead to 2022, what are some things on the horizon that that excite you, that give you hope, that that you anticipate we may be talking about in the the months to come? Yeah, and again, here, Jeremy, I'll break it down into sort of an internal and external view. Internally, just looking at our research program, I'm really excited about two different programs that we are planning to launch this year. One is around clinical trial capacity. And I talked about this previously. We launched a clinical trial awards program last year. Right. So, and, and the reason was to increase the number of clinical trials in our ALS ecosystem. But if you increase the number of trials, you need more trial sites where people can participate and be in a clinical trial. And so to increase the number of clinical trial sites, we are looking at funding this clinical trial capacity program, either increasing capacity at trial centers now so that they can have more people recruited into the trials or even funding brand new sites and bringing them up to become clinical trial centers. So that's uh, really an exciting program that we're looking forward to. Another one is around prevention. And, you know, this is a new concept, Jeremy, for our community. 
but it's not a new concept. Think about us going to a doctor and they measure our cholesterol levels and they, you know, if our cholesterol is high, they will tell us things to do, interventions, don't eat, you know, fatty food or do exercise or may even put you on an anti-cholesterol medication or cholesterol reducing medications, even if you don't have heart disease. Why? So that we can prevent you from get, going on to get heart disease. That's the concept we want to bring into ALS. And this new funding program and priority that we're developing is how do we get ALS to that same status where we can provide guidelines or guidance or even have drugs that people can take at at-risk populations so that we can either you know, completely delay the disease or, you know, just not have it at all. So that's internally. Externally, I'm really looking forward to the readouts from the Healy trial. So, you know, just for everybody, this is the Healy platform trial. We've talked about this before, where multiple therapies are getting tested all at the same time. And this year, we expect a couple of those to actually have a midpoint readout. You know, how are they doing at a midpoint? And so that is really exciting. You know, from three years back when we were just talking about it in a concept phase, we provided $3 million of funding to this trial infrastructure. But this year, we'll actually start to see some of the results come in. And so, you know, that's a really exciting thing to look forward to. A lot to be excited about on the horizon. I, I, you know, I'm struck by how you discussed the prevention aspect and how standard that is in so much of our healthcare and how revolutionary it is to start thinking about it in terms of, of preventing ALS. It's incredibly exciting. You know, Dr. Dave, in a few moments, we are going to be hearing from Dr. David Ennis, CEO and Chief Science Officer at Origin Data Sciences. We're going to be talking about their research into drug rescue analysis and and Dr. Dave, that's research that's being funded by the ALS Association. Yeah, this is such an exciting project. And it's one of the projects that we funded last year. So the course of the disease varies significantly in ALS. If you, I always like to say, if you meet, if you have met one person with ALS, you have just met that one person with ALS because everybody right. is different. This is what we call heterogeneity in science. And this heterogeneity makes it very difficult to determine whether or not a treatment works in clinical trials. So if clinicians are better able to identify subgroups, that subgroup may have a higher likelihood where a drug can work, then it would be easier to find drugs that work for that subgroup. So again, we are identifying subgroups so that the drug can have a higher chance of success. And this project from Dr. Ennest is really interesting because it's looking at failed clinical trials. It's going to look at two clinical trials that failed, but it's going to do machine learning, artificial intelligence type approaches to try to see were there some people, were there subgroups in those failed trials where the drug actually looked like it worked? And if we can apply these types of very innovative learning tools, we can, in short term, may be able to see whether even in those failed trials, 
you know, were there specific subgroups that the drug works in, but in a longer term, it can actually change how we do clinical trials and increasing the probability of clinical trial success. And so again, this goes, Jeremy, directly to our making 2030 a livable goal, because if we can find drugs that work in subpopulations, we don't need to find a drug that works in everybody. If we can find five drugs that work in 20% of populations, now we have 100% covered. And that's what this project from Dr. Ennis is going to tell us. And I'm really excited that he's going to have an opportunity to tell our audience what he's going to do. Well, it sounds, Dr. Dave, like once again, we're kicking off the year with some promise and some things to look forward to. Hopefully, uh, this is not your last time with us here on Connecting ALS, and, and we can have you back to talk about some of these readouts and some of these new programs that are going to be coming online. And I would be happy to join you again, Jeremy. Well, with that, earlier this week, I did have a chance to talk with Dr. Dave Ennis, CEO and Chief Science Officer at Origin Data Sciences, about their work in drug rescue analysis. Let's hear from Dr. Ennis now. Uh, well, Dave, thank you so much for being with us this week. Uh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. We've had uh, so much uh, great interaction with the ALS Association. Uh, I'm happy to talk about our work. Yeah, and it's exciting work. And I'm learning uh, through this conversation, and hopefully listeners will be as well. And, and I may say, uh, I want to get into some of the, the, the guts of the research, so to speak. But this is as far as I can tell, a pretty novel approach to to research. And, and what we're talking about here is a drug rescue analysis, something that I think is maybe not part of everybody's day-to-day -day conversation. So maybe we start with that and talk to us a little bit about what drug rescue analysis is. Yeah, this is really an outgrowth of our subgroup analysis method methods. And what that that's a pretty standard set of studies that you do after a clinical trial to sort of figure out what happened, uh, what groups may have responded particularly well, or maybe there were some groups that didn't respond at all, or maybe were harmed. And so this is subgroup analysis designed to kind of dissect your trial and find out uh, if there were different subpopulations within the trial who maybe responded differently to the therapeutic. And so what we started thinking about was, well, we've got uh, this set of algorithms that have let us uh, really stratify ALS patients really well. And up to the point where we're thinking about subgroup analysis, we had always sort of thought about that approach prospectively. That is, um, at the beginning of a trial, you kind of enrich for the trial, you find subgroups of, uh, you, know, you identify different sets of patients, and then um, a really strong use of that kind of prospective prediction is to use those predictions at the end of the trial during the analysis phase of the trial. There's something where we adjust the analysis using the predictions, and that kind of helps us balance the two arms of the trial. That's what we've always, uh, how we were always thinking about using stratification. Uh, but the more we thought about it and realized that, hey, we ought to be able to uh, stratify at the end of a trial, a group of patients, maybe in a trial that had a slightly overall positive therapeutic effect that was not statistically significant, and ask the question, well, was there a particular subgroup within that trial that really was driving that uh, slightly overall positive uh, result, even though it was not statistically significant? 
So we started thinking about that a little deeper and realized that, well, we could take everybody in a trial, make predictions for them just using their baseline information, and then put them in order by predicted uh, slowest progressors uh, all the way to predicted rapid progressors. And then in the spirit of subgroup analysis, then we could methodically form subgroups using groups of patients with similar predicted disease progressions. And as that evolved, we started realizing that, hey, you know, this could really be a really useful uh, method for uh, looking back at these trials and trying to identify a type of patient with certain characteristics that may have formed the basis for a successful trial. Is that subgroup analysis rooted in the understanding that it's in the case of ALS, it's very heterogeneous disease. So the experiences are going to differ from patient to patient, from subgroup to subgroup. Is that driving some of the, the questions that are being asked about the results and some of the subgroup analysis? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think one of the really stunning things that uh, people should do, I think, is at the end of the trial, take all the, the placebo patients in the trial and then just plot out their uh, uh, functional score progression over the duration of the trial. And I think that more than likely uh, what they'll find is a spaghetti plot. Some patients progressed very rapidly, some patients not at all or very slowly through the course of the trial. And that just tells you right there that there's so much noise in that trial uh, that that makes it really hard to detect the signal. And so, yeah, I think um, our approach to subgroup analysis was rooted in trying to dissect uh, the spaghetti plot into groups of patients who could be predicted uh, before uh, using just the initial information of the trial, uh, groups of patients that could be predicted to progress at similar disease rates. How do you make determinations when you're looking into the trial data, basically like what questions you need to be asking, right? Which variables should be looking at as potential a relationship between a different outcome than maybe if we're looking at that spaghetti plot and get closer to that, that straight line that we're looking for to show some type of causal connection? The models are actually already built. And so we use the uh, PROACT uh, ALS database, which thankfully uh, ALS Association has taken over to uh, continue its support for. We're, we're all for that. Uh, it's a really extremely useful data set. Um, so we use that database of over 10,000 ALS patients and build our models using that. Uh, we have uh, models that predict the progression of functional score, each of the subscores, vital capacity in several forms, and also time to uh, use of a wheelchair, time to uh, NIV use, uh, time to gastrostomy, survival. And then also most recently, uh, we've developed models uh, for uh, King Stage. All of these models we can then apply uh, to stratify patients. And uh, what we're finding is the ones that seem to be the most useful uh, for deck analysis appear to be a time to 50% vital capacity. That might be a really key model. But that said, one of the goals of the grant that uh, we recently were awarded uh, by the ALS Association is to really get a better handle on that and understand how the various models work in stratifying the patients and, and how they can maybe differentially be used for this subgroup analysis methodology. 
what then becomes the next step after you've run the subgroup analysis? If you find something interesting, where does the research go from there? Yeah, so what we want to do is then uh, have a look at that uh, subgroup specifically. Typically, what we try to do is, is apply the statistical analysis plan uh, from the uh, particular trial that was in question. So we try to stick as much as possible to kind of the, the plans uh, for a particular clinical trial. But then once we identify that particular subgroup, we want to try to uh, see, well, is this the optimal subgroup? And that's another point uh, that we want to explore further under the grant is how do we define an optimal subgroup? What does that mean? Is it the largest one? Is it the subgroup with this treatment effect? Is it subgroup with the lowest variance, the highest effect size? And how do we, how do we do this? And so uh, that's part of uh, what we want to uh, solidify. But right now we're thinking that uh, maybe the group with the highest effect size might be a place to uh, really start looking at. What we also have to take into consideration is the size of the subgroup. We literally begin with uh, very small subgroups initially, and, and that's just to get the ball rolling. And then we methodically add the next, quote, nearest neighbors, the next most similar patients that were participated in that trial. And we keep building the size of each of the subgroups until we get to the full analysis set the, the, of all the patients who participated in a particular trial. And I think sort of just empirically, we want to stay away from small trials because uh, small subgroups because right. those are subject to just random effects. And uh, we, we might have a P less than 0.05 and, and a, just because there was a, a big outlier among, say, six or seven patients uh, that happened to be in that very small subgroup. So I think typically, and again, this is empirical, uh, we want to probably look to uh, have about 40% uh, of the full analysis set at least uh, in a particular subgroup before we start thinking that maybe we have something. And then uh, once we identify a subgroup in one trial, the most rigorous application uh, would be to uh, look at a second trial with the same agent. Um, so uh, one of the things that we're looking for are trials where there were two uh, sequential RCTs uh, being performed. And that gives us a lot of confidence in that hotspot if we find it a priori in the second trial. Yeah, and I, just to clarify, and I, I, it's maybe, it may seem obvious, but just so listeners are, are you know, aware, we're talking about trials that have concluded and going back into the data and trying to find meaningful relationships that exist in the data. This is not starting a new trial, right? Oh, that's correct. So how do you make a determination which trial is a good candidate for this type of analysis? Well, I can give you an example of a trial that we've looked at in the past. Um, this was the ceftriaxone ALS trial. And I got started with that. We had kind of had the germ of detectable effect cluster analysis, uh, and we realized we needed to start testing it. And so at a meeting, I asked uh, Merit Sakovich and John Glass, in recent memory, what are, uh, what's a trial that you feel maybe some patients benefited from the intervention? And, and independently, they both said ceftriaxone. Uh, so I said, okay, well, I'll go ahead and get that data set. It's one of the data sets that happened to be available from uh, NINDS. Uh, so it was uh, readily accessible. And when we looked at that, 
Uh, sure enough, it had a slightly overall positive uh, treatment effect that was not statistically significant. But then when we organized the patients uh, according to slowest progressor to most rapid progressor and then formed the subgroups, uh, we found a hotspot of activity in kind of a group of moderately progressing patients, somewhere around a typical uh, point a month, but pretty tight uh, with that point per month. And when we did a, a performance statistical test on that, uh, we found a subgroup of patients there who had uh, a P less than 0.05. I think it was about 42% of the full analysis set. And that, that particular subgroup uh, had been predicted to decline in uh, vital capacity 15 to 25% over the course of a year. And so that was a, a group of moderately progressing patients that uh, progressed rapidly enough so that uh, we'd be able to show a therapeutic effect, but not so fast that there was so much noise uh, in the subgroup that it would be hard to uh, demonstrate significance. And what was really interesting in that particular analysis was that there was a small zone in the rapidly progressing patients that was uh, trending towards significance, but there was just so much uh, variability among those rapidly progressing patients that it really failed to be less than uh, 0.05. So I, I think the sort of theory really worked out, uh, that is that amongst kind of a, a set of patients with a really defined disease progression rate, we could find a, a treatment effect with uh, significance. Yeah, well, so then if you find that treatment effect amongst a, a subpopulation, I, I can't imagine that that is then sufficient to move forward with, with, with say, an NDA. Is the next step then to run a, a trial with that particular subpopulation and try to test for robustness of that potential treatment effect? Yeah, that might be uh, one approach. Uh, in all honesty, the next step will depend on the sponsor and sure. the FDA. But the way we really envision it is to be able to uh, take that hotspot and get it as rapidly as possible into a registration trial. And I think it, it all goes back to, well, how sure are we of that hotspot? Right. And uh, if we have uh, two sequential RCTs before that, where we find the same hotspot in both of the uh, RCTs, then we're getting pretty confident about it. And so um, uh, we, we should be able to uh, uh, justify a registration trial at that point. After all, um, uh, what we're looking at in the RCTs are basically for frequently a, a failed registration trial. Uh, so that if you look at the uh, Darabone studies, for example, uh, they had uh, an initial study uh, that failed to meet its endpoint. They found uh, a subgroup within uh, that trial that they were then able to go uh, directly into a registration trial. So I think that's the model that we would try to follow and uh, basically see if a sponsor and the FDA uh, would agree with that. Like most things, I guess it depends on the robustness of the findings and how strong the case is to be made. Absolutely. I should point out that uh, we envision this method not just for uh, looking at retro or retroactively uh, and, and rescuing a trial, but also uh, prospectively. We can imagine a trial that has pretty broad inclusion criteria, and uh, the interim analysis is uh, used uh, by performing uh, DEC analysis to find a, a group of patients um, that are demonstrating a treatment effect. 
and then seamlessly to expand that subgroup of patients into uh, a more robust RCT. Uh, so I think there are a, a number of applications for this, uh, and, and we really see it as uh, revolutionizing the way we think about designing clinical trials, and then also retrospectively analyzing uh, subgroups within more than likely a failed trial. That's a really fascinating approach to research and uh, really something uh, that I'm gonna, we're going to keep our eyes on here on Connecting ALS. Uh, Dave, before I let you go, uh, any closing thoughts on drug rescue analysis and where we stand today in the search for, for treatments and a cure? Yeah, you know, I really think that there are um, uh, cures out there in trials that we have already tested uh, but failed to uh, uh, really uh, show significance. And, and I think this is one way, or this will be a way of finding those uh, gems. And maybe it's going to be for subgroups of patients, or, you know, I think at the end of this day, I'll be prepared to argue that, well, you know, ALS is such a heterogeneous disease that what we have to do is uh, work with the statistics uh, to find uh, homogeneous subgroups of patients uh, in order to test our uh, therapeutics, and that barring any adverse events uh, within other subgroups, uh, we should be able to apply the drugs uh, to the full range of patients. It's just that particular patients at a different stage in the disease form subgroups uh, with a lot of noise, or patients who are progressing slowly just don't have enough of a window above their decline uh, to really be able to uh, demonstrate uh, the effect. Um, so I think that overall, what we'll be able to do is find new drugs from old failed trials. Well, it's a new year and a new hope on the horizon. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for your time this week. All right, great. Thank you. A pleasure meeting you, Jeremy. I want to thank our guests this week, Dr. Kuldeep Dave and Dr. Dave Ennis. And thanks to you for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend to check us out. You can subscribe to Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And while you're there, take time to rate and review the show. It is a great way for us to connect with even more people. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. We'll connect with you again soon.